Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share, she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal series, wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health! Exclamation point, The Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise, The Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years, The Wise Woman Way, down there, sexual and reproductive health, the wise woman way. And abundantly well, seven medicines, the wise woman way. The newest book in the wise woman herbal series. So exciting. In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public on appointment-only basis. She offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at thewisewomanschool.com. Join us there for colorful, instructive, easy video courses, including Easy Herbal Medicine with Susan Weed, Happy Knees, a cancer diagnosis, adaptogens for long life, and abundantly well companion course, wisewomanschool.com. You can also just go to her website, susanweed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's See what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. Thank you, Justine, and welcome, Sarah Ellen. Is Justine still there? Oh, no, she left yesterday about lunchtime. <laughs> <laughs> what a fun surprise that was. That would be fun, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, she was so close. I was like, please, come stay, and... 
Right. Oh, my gosh. She really enjoyed your goats and you and, yes, everything. Well, we really enjoyed them. It was so marvelous. Yep. So they're headed to Niagara the really, really good, good news is the T-shirts are here, the T-shirts are here, the T-shirts are here, and they are gorgeous. They are oh. stunning. I wore one today, the one with the double design, right? Mm. It has energetic Hypericum goddess with her arms upraised in the front and the sedative Hypericum goddess, you know, sitting in meditation on the back. And mm. a single design shirt right, with either one on the front or the back, and the sizes go all the way up to 3XL, and gang, buy shirts, buy them for people's presents, buy them, buy early holiday presents. You know, last year, um, everybody bent the rules for me, and there was only one comfrey goddess, and so they let me get 50 shirts, but the real minimum is 75. Oh, and I couldn't just, like, get 75 of one of the goddesses and none of the other. Right. So I got oh. 75 of each of the goddesses. Wow. And then I got, and then they let me get 50 front and back. So yours is on the way, Sarah Ellen. Oh, I'm excited. Oh, my gosh. I love it, love it. I wear my comfrey all the time. So, oh, yes, no. Yes. One. All right. So wow. they're at, um, I guess they're at the marketplace, um, at the Hypericum marketplace, and I think maybe they're also at the Wise Woman Bookshop. Yeah, they are. Mm-hmm. So please buy T-shirts. You'll be glad you did. Yes. I'll let everyone know how awesome they are next week. Hopefully the Postal Service will get mine here before the next Yeah, show. exactly. <laughs> uh, so, wow, the Hypericum Conference is officially over. Mm. How fun it was. It was it was such a delight. It has given me some insights into an herb that has been an almost daily companion for 30 years. Mm. Mm. I, have, so I have chafed. I have chafed at buying Arnica. Arnica gel, but wow, you know, I have seen it like reduce swelling and bruising so fast that I just say, just, you know, it's the one thing you buy, Susan, just do it. But as you heard me say at the um, Zoom session, uh, my foot got stomped, and by the Mm. time the boot came off my foot, two of the toes were already swollen and bruised. And there was Arnica on the boat that had gone through the winter, and it was much the worse for the wear. And there was Hypericum oil, which I put on the toes. And the relief of the pain was almost instantaneous, within a minute for sure. How amazing. And all of the swelling and all of the bruising were gone within an hour or two. I was like, whoa, all right. Love you, Arnica. 
All right, and I will continue, you know, whenever I get an, hinj- an injury and there's just like nothing around, I just say to myself, Arnica, Arnica, Arnica. And now I'm going to say, Arnica, Hypericum, Arnica, Hypericum, Arnica, Hypericum. <laughs> and remind my body, remind my my psyche of those things so that I get the benefit even if I don't, in fact, have them with me. But I was very, very impressed with using it that way. What Have you changed anything in the way you use it or added something to your use of it? Well, you know, I, like, right after the conference, I started getting what felt like arthritis or something in my pinky, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but it was so painful. And just when it was present, I couldn't ignore it. And so I rubbed Hypericum on, and like you said, are you so milking? Was, um, no, no. Oh, okay. Because that, that it would be so, excruciating if you were milking to have arthritis in one of your fingers. Yeah, no, and it 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 wasn't like I don't know. It's hard to describe. It was almost like a stabbing, shooting pain in my the pinky joint, and it was almost like something was gnawing on the inside of it. And mm. I used a and it just it soothes it and hasn't been back. My husband was complaining about arthritis in his thumb, and I was like, try hypericum oil, and he did, and, you know, he rubbed it in. I said, because I said, you know, rub it in really well and, you know, give your thumb a nice massage, and he was like, wow, that works. Yeah. Yeah, he wouldn't have said that if it wasn't true. <laughs> right. Right. So it's interesting that for both of us, the most ancient use of it as a wound remedy is the one that we have most ignored and are now able to embrace. Yes, yes. There's one other thing I think I have noticed a difference in better sleep um, because I started taking the tincture in the morning. One of the, the presenters suggested it was helpful for sleep but not taken right before bed, taken in the morning. And I have been doing that, and I have been sleeping and dreaming a lot more, too. So. Well, that's interesting. I like that. That's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking, you know, today that I don't think there's any anyone on the planet who wouldn't benefit from using Hypericum in some form or other on a daily basis. And certainly we were exposed to a huge n- number of forms from somebody who used half teaspoonful doses of the tincture five times a day, which is a pretty high dose to people who were using homeopathic remedies and even the flower essence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And all with, you know, seemingly very good effect. Tinctures, oils, right? Wow. The whole array of different things. I also, thinking about the Comfrey Conference, which was time to end the fear, thought that at the end of the Comfrey Conference, I could confidently say, we have ended the fear. And anyone who's afraid of Comfrey should just 
come to this conference. And of course, that's possible, right? You can always come to the conference afterwards. You can't quite come to the Hypericum conference yet because we're adding to it. We're adding all the Zoom sessions to it, and we're going to add my wrap-up to it. Mm. <clears throat> and I haven't done my wrap-up yet. Um, so at the end of the Comfrey Conference, I thought, yes, you know, we have ended the fear. But at the end of the Hypericum Conference, I do not feel confident that we have ended the nonsense. Mm. Wow. You know, we had someone tell us that she saw one person in decades of practice who moved from the Northeast to the Southwest and who got a sunburn, which she ascribed to Hypericum, and then, if I heard correctly, um, decided that it was unsafe for everybody to use and that you should even wait a month um, after taking it to to go out in the sun. Yeah, I think there's just so much opportunity for confusion that leads to nonsense around that because, I mean, nothing, not even SPF 50 is going to prevent you from burning. If you go out and spend eight hours, ten hours in the sun and it's your first time out or you're at an elevation of, you know, I don't know, 5,000 feet or something, chances are you're going to burn if you don't take just common sense precautions. You're not wearing, like, you know, a shield of reflective armor. So I think there's just, like, so much misattribution. Like, people are looking, and Hypericum gets scapegoated big time for just silly behavior with raw skin in the sun. And, yeah, a lot of nonsense and misattribution of what, Kind of like what you say with people eat something. They assume the last thing they ate is what made them sick, and then a food foible starts or, you know, something. Just not the cause and effect. Like, it, yeah. yeah. It was interesting to me that um, about a round number, I would say, that all the presenters' experience added together was about 800 years. Mm. And in that 800 How- years of experience, there were four incidents, possible incidents of photosensitivity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how many times were we told by people, oh, it prevents burns, oh, it heals burns, oh, I use it as a sunscreen. Over right. and over again. So yeah, and I was waiting for somebody to say, you know, like, I lived in the sun and I didn't change anything except for I started taking Hypericum and then this happened. And no one said that. No, nobody anyway. said anything like that. I actually have just finished a little experiment. I decanted some Hypericum tincture, which left me with a jar with the leftover plant material, which still has some alcohol in it. And what I usually do with that is I just throw it away. But because people were actually talking about drinking it as a tea and getting good results, I decided to see if I could show myself that it was safe. So I poured Mm. boiling water over that, made that tincture tea, you know, let it sit for hours, 
and then started drinking it by the half cupful and going and sitting out in the sun and being silly about it. Nice. Not wearing a hat, not wearing long sleeves, not putting on hypericum oil, really in the sun and in the sun too long and I didn't burn. Nice. Nice. And it took me a week to finish that jar. So I have shown to myself that at least for myself, um, using it as a tea and using it in capsules is probably not as terrible as I think. Yeah. I mean, I thought back to my college days when I did take St. John's Wort in capsules and nothing happened to me. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and then Corey Short, she was talking about taking it in capsules too, and she didn't have any side effects. In fact, she didn't have any effects, so she stopped taking it. Me too. Same thing. Same thing. It was just like, ah, this is a waste. And But I, I didn't burn, and I lived in Florida at the time, so it wasn't. Yeah, I I just don't, I, I don't think that there's any truth to that. I do think, like you said, that there is nonsense around it, um, but I think it's just total nonsense, and it's a scapegoat, not reality. <laughs> At least not for I, me. Just, I just I, want to remind everybody who's listening that both Sarah Ellen and I listened to or participated in every one of the presentations. In other words, I did not listen to mine. I didn't listen to Gretchen's because Gretchen and I did that together. So that's what I mean, participated in or listened to. Um, and that... Um, both Sarah Ellen and Susan were at the live Zoom meetings. So um, I listened to every short that wasn't me reading and listened to a few of the ones of me reading. Oh, boy, I chose some really good books to read from. I don't know if you've gotten to listen to any of those, but I picked some some really good ones. Um, mm. So when when we are saying... You know, it's really nonsense, this stuff about being photosensitive. It's really nonsense about interacting with drugs. We're not just voicing an opinion. We're actually letting you in on the results of our inquiry. I ask every presenter two questions, one about whether or not they'd seen photosensitivity and one about whether or not they'd seen drug interactions. Who had seen a drug interaction? I don't remember anyone even attributing anything to a drug. No one. Not a single drug interaction among 22 presenters. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. From what? Scotland, Spain, Canada, the United States. Yeah. 
And some of them took pharmaceutical drugs at the time for, for various, whether it was for like, you know, a sickness that was more acute or long-term medication. So it wasn't like it was a one or the other. So, and yeah, I, as practitioners or patients have been taking Hypericum along with drugs. And you remember that I would ask them this, if they would say, which they all did, no, I haven't seen any interactions, I would say, is that because you don't know anybody who took Hypericum with drugs? Right. <laughs> And most of them said, oh, no, I know people who've taken drugs. In fact, there was, what, one or two presenters who actually worked with people um, tapering off on their antidepressants and tapering up on hypericum and thus taking both of them at the same time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Astrid, the midwife, speaking about the use in pregnancy, and some of those women are certainly on medications for various things and doesn't impede her use at all or recommendation, you know, that that be used during pregnancy. So I think it's, yeah, I feel really comfortable about it, especially since I have so much of my own experience in so many different forms. Um, Yeah, and watching Barbara cook up the cakes of them and eat them and then like the eye wash like I'm really curious about the eye wash that's something I really want to try right right mm-hmm. that was that was from the root right yeah decoction of the root yes yeah wow which she strained through a cloth mm-hmm. she didn't just like mm-hmm. decoct the root right into her eye gang she made sure there was <laughs> absolutely nothing Nothing in there that could get into her eye. And, um, yeah, uh, Jane, who was at all the Zoom sessions um, and lives in Holland, got in touch today and said that she poked herself in the eye with a piece of oat straw. Oh, and I was outside all day. It was a beautiful day in the Catskills. I was outside um, with the goats, with the plants, and doing stuff. So I didn't see her message when she sent it to me. And then later on there was a message that said, okay, I found some celandine. I put it on my eye. I'm looking for chickweed. I want to put that on my eye. And then later she said, I think it's getting better. And I thought, oh, how wonderful that she feels, you know, so... Mm-hmm. Connected to the earth. Mm-hmm. And she knows that whatever she's going to choose, she, she can't go wrong. It's going to work out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Well, I got a letter. April is National Poetry Month, and I've taken on the 30-30 challenge, writing 30 poems in 30 days just for the joy of it. I used to be a very serious poet, but after the death of my son, I've been opening to embrace a practice of being a very joyful poet, doing it for the love of it and not using my striving for perfection as another 
tools to bludgeon myself with. So, here's first draft poem. Dashed off and followed with a touch of craft. Each of the 30 poems I am sending to someone I love. And that is you. Hmm. Poem number 18. For scars becoming breath. That's a quote from Andrea Gibson. The whole, the whole lattice work of these two years, these 25, 46 years, has been scars. Lattice work like trellis for roses, climbing thorns, petals, perfume of the sweetness of loss, of song, and this, our shared humanity. Nursing a cavity of loss from too much sweet from the heat of drawing too close to the flame, but we must, we must resist the flame of sameness. <coughs> Take risks. To love is to lose. To love is to lose. And grief is a sleeve of loving and not forgetting. Getting. Even in the losing, don't be lazy with the phenomenon of your grief. We are alive. Now is how we situate ourselves around the feast. Ing, table, pull up a chair, hear it scrape the floor, let it percuss like the one bare branch scratching at your window deep in the night. Thank you, Susan, for opening the way, for modeling, for listening, for attending to your own wild self and sharing that sacred medicine with all of us. Goddess, bless you as you bless me. Mm. Wow, how sweet. How moving. How deep. Beautiful. Mm. Yeah. Wow. I bet Chris Franken is going to be that moving, too. She is also a way shower and the author of Wild Hearted Purpose. She also wrote a book called The Call of Intuition, but we're mostly going to be talking about wild-hearted purpose and how she somehow got from Toronto to Byron Bay. That will be at 9 o'clock. Stick with us until then or come on back to enjoy Chris Franken. Nice. Anything, else, anything else going on you want to talk about? Oh, goodness. Well, you know, the garden is just, ooh, everything is thriving out there, just going, going, going. So it's been fun ever since the conference has wrapped up. I've been out there tending and seeing what came up from plants planted over the fall, and it's been so curious. So it's like a whole new way of learning plant ID. So I'm watching them 
and having to ID them amongst the other plants that are there. And so it's been really fun. It's like, um, you know, where's Waldo in my own yard? (laughs) (laughs) And learning to recognize them when they're so tiny. Yes, at least enough to, like, know to leave them and say, that might be something. The sweet, um, sweet Cecily, that came up, and I was so excited. I just, I don't know, I felt like that was special. So there have been, yeah, it's been fun. It's like it's been a treasure hunt here for the last 10 days. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. Well, we certainly had a lot to say this evening. Thank you all for bearing with us. And one last hoorah for the T-shirts. Check it out at wisewomanbookshop.com. Three different T-shirts, you know. Oh, wow, they are so gorgeous. They really totally outdid themselves on these T-shirts. Yum. Anybody out there with anybody out there with questions tonight? Uh yes, there are three hands that have already been raised and I'll remind everyone listening if you've got a question and would like to speak live with Susan this evening, please press one so we can see your hands go up. Uh let's see, there are four hands raised at this time. The first caller who has pressed one is from the nine zero seven area code. From the nine zero seven you are live with Susan. Hey Susan, uh, this is Kai. Hi, um, I have a couple. Hi, um, couple of questions. Um, nettles growing around the compost pile. Does that make the nettle more potent? Um, I have a lot of different answers to your questions. The first answer is the broadest answer, and that is that it occurred to me that as a woman and as an herbalist, that focusing on potency might not be the most profitable thing. I see the arc of herbalism as running from naked people rolling in the plants through to making drugs from herbs. And I've got nothing against it, you know. If we had to get taxol from Pacific U, there wouldn't be Pacific U trees left. But because we've learned to synthesize it, um, we can now offer anybody who wants it taxol. Um, but Uh, oh, I totally lost my train of thought. Tell me again what you were asking about, and it'll come back to me. I was just wondering the fact that it's growing around the compost pile, if it makes it compost more pile. potent. Mm. Potent. Potent. That's what I was talking about. Potency, right? So mm-hmm. I said, because more potent is what makes a drug. Okay. Drugs are the most potent part of the herbs. Now, I know you don't necessarily mean it that way, you Uh, might actually mean, would it be more nourishing? That's it. 
And because we live in a time where women are actively being erased, I think it's very important for us to really um, use language that is woman-centered, woman-centric, as Mary Daly would have called it. That Would that make the nettle richer in minerals? Would it make it more nourishing? Would it have more vitamins? Mm-hmm. Vitamins tend to be present in all growing plants. Some plants store more vitamins than others, but all growing plants, especially near their outer surfaces, have quite a lot of antioxidant vitamins, including vitamin C. So any plant growing anywhere is going to have a good amount of vitamins. Minerals are absolutely dependent on what's in the soil. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what's in the compost. Oh, Nettle in mm-hmm. general is going to grow where the soil is rich in protein, nitrogen, because nettle is very high in protein. So it likes compost piles. It likes fertile soil. It likes dampish soils. I don't like to have it growing in the compost pile because it spreads my roots. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny. It's growing around it. It will soon be growing in it, and then wherever you move move (laughs) compost to, there will be little bits of that, and then nettle will be everywhere, and it's really kind of stingy. I don't mind having a whole bed of nettle, and I don't mind harvesting it barehanded, but I do not like doing other things in the garden and suddenly discovering there's a nettle there. So I try to, to ward it back from the compost piles, knowing that I'm going to put compost where the nettle is growing. I have a bed devoted to nettle. And I give it one to two inches of compost twice a year. Yeah, I could move it. (laughs) I've got a lot of space for it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Second, uh, Betty Dodson, did you know her? I did. Oh, okay. Um, there was an astrologer that sent me this um, email, and May is National Masturbation Month, and he sent a bunch of her artwork and a lot of stuff about her. And I said, I have to call Susan and ask her if she actually met her. And you met her, so what was she like? I was part of a group of women who decided that we were going to create a place called the Woodstock Women's Center. And we we wanted to be everything. And we weren't really...
good at doing everything, but one of the things that we were pretty good at was inviting women to come to Woodstock and teach us, talk to us, give a presentation. And Betty Dodson came. She came with <laughs> Pun Sheila Shea and another woman whose name I do not recall. I remember Sheila Shea because Sheila Shea and I mm-hmm. actually continued to know each other. So Betty talked to us about, Betty Dodson talked to us about her book and she showed us her beautiful drawings and she was still alive when I did down there and she gave me permission to use her drawings in down there. Oh, wow. Yeah. And... (laughs) Then Sheila laid down on the floor of the Woodstock Women's Center and said, where's the closest floor? Do I need an extension cord? Who has a watch with a second hand? And we thought, what is going on here? And Sheila proceeded to lay there and with a vibrator have a brilliant orgasm in about two and a half minutes. And we all went, what? And she said, <laughs> and she said the second one's always faster. And it was. And mm-hmm. we went, double what? So, <laughs> 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 and Betty and Sheila and the other woman actually stayed with me. I was their hostess while they were in town, so I got to know them a little bit, not very much. And what was Betty like? Betty was one of those people who are a delight to be with because they know exactly what they're about and what their purpose is and what they're doing. And they're just, you know, a lot of fun to be with because they're so focused. Mm. You could see that in her artwork. The woman was amazing. Yeah. Totally focused on women claiming masturbation. And when I was writing down there, it came to me very, very clearly that I hadn't met any men who hadn't figured out how to have an orgasm on their own. But I met a great many women who hadn't figured it out. Mm. Some in their 50s and 60s who still hadn't figured it out. Mm-hmm. And I began to realize more and more um her passion, what she was offering to all of us, how important it is for us as women to claim ourselves as masturbating adults and orgasmic adults and that a woman's orgasm starts with herself 
And if after that she wants to share with someone else, that's fine. But it's not on somebody else's to-do list. Mm-hmm. So thanks for letting me know that it's National Orgasm <laughs> Month, did you say? Uh, National Masturbation Month. National Masturbation Month. All right. You don't even have to have an orgasm. Betty Dodson. (laughs) Okay. Yay, Betty. And thank you for that, Susan. You did a perfect dedication. She uh, helped me in many ways become the woman that I am. Thank you, Betty. Thank you, Betty. Thank you, Susan. And thank you, Sheila Shea. When it came to the time in my life when I said, oh, my gosh, I need a lot more money than I'm currently making. How am I going to do it? And I realized that the best way was to go far away from home and then I'd be famous. I got in touch with Sheila Shea, who lived in Florida, and I said, make me a workshop. And she did, and I went and stayed with her. And for several years, I went and spent time with Sheila and did workshops there. So thank you, Sheila, as well. Thank you, Sheila. I hope she that she's still around and enjoying herself, and perhaps these loving words will get to her. Okay, green blessings, Susan. Thank you very much. Green blessings. Good night. Good night. All right, and I'll remind everyone, if you have a question for Susan this evening, please make sure you press 1 on your telephone keypad. And this time we have three callers that have pressed 1. The next caller is dialed in from the 512 area code. From the 512, you are live with Susan. Hello. Hi. Hey. Um, I have a question related to two and... Um, well, tooth health. I um, have a root canal scheduled for tomorrow, and I just have, I'm just kind of curious about um, what your opinion is on, like, trying to treat an infection like that, like that's, you know, like up in the gum line um, or at the root of the tooth, if it's even possible. And the reason why I'm asking is because I've actually never had any kind of major complications from my abscess. Um, Basically, in 2015 summer, I noticed it was bleeding a lot, like when I would floss. And uh, unfortunately, I just, like, didn't go to the dentist and maybe should have, I don't know, but... um, Obviously, many years have passed, and I've been to the dentist a couple of times, and so at this point, I've had two different dentists tell me that it's an abscess tooth and it needs a root canal, but um, it's um, probably the least uh, irritated right now that it's ever been before. It's not really inflamed. There's never been any swelling. There's never been any real issue at all, actually. I wouldn't have even known it was abscess if they hadn't told me. Um, Every now and then I've had some pain, like when I maybe, like, touch the tooth, like, um, 
I just, you know, like kind of, I'll notice a little discomfort, but, and like a little bit, it does follow the nerve right up by my nose. And so like, sometimes I can feel it, that there is something going on there. Um, And one of the dentists actually told me that it can be really serious. It can actually kill you to have an infection like that. But I would imagine I would have much more symptoms, I guess, maybe, but I'm just curious maybe like what you would do if you were in my position with that information. It is absolutely true that having Mm -hmm. an infection in the root of your tooth can easily get into your bloodstream. Okay. And that infection can be carried to your heart pretty easily. So that's one of the first things that they worry about. Um, And it can go pretty much anywhere in your body. Modern dentistry focuses on saving teeth. And that means saving the roots of the teeth. So your modern dentist wants you to do a root canal so that you will preserve at least the roots of the tooth, which is good for the structure of your face. Mm -hmm. You don't have to do that because the abscess, the infection, is not causing you much pain. It will eat the bone, and it will ultimately destroy the tooth, which will then fall out of your mouth. Okay. And you'll then have to decide what you're going to do if there's, like, roots left in your gum, how those are going to be pulled. That's what people used to do. There's nothing wrong with doing that, but it's not what we think of as the way we want to treat our teeth nowadays. Mm -hmm. Since we have the option to have a root canal, which is a procedure in which very tiny holes are drilled into the tooth along the nerve channel to remove the dead nerve. It's rather like removing a splinter. And when the dead nerve is removed, the inflammatory response ceases because the body doesn't have to fight that infection anymore. There are some people who think that infections in your teeth lead to dementia because of the inflammation that's there in your mouth and that close to your brain. Mm-hmm. But again, you are the one who's there and living with it. The person who 
you have an appointment with to do the root canal. Does this person often do root canals? Um, I mean, you know, I actually don't know the answer to that question. Um, I had a root canal, and I sought out the person in my area who does nothing but root canals. Okay. I didn't just go to anybody. I said, if I'm going to have a root canal, I'm going to get myself ready for it. I'm going to take a genacea for a while. I'm going to be sure to use some yarrow on the area beforehand. And afterwards, I'm going to really see to, you know, working with my anti-infective herbs and my visualizations. And I sought out the person who had the most skill. So that's my choice and how I take care of myself rather than questioning the procedure I do it in the safest, most enjoyable, best quality way I can. Okay, yeah, that sounds like sound advice. I hadn't really thought of doing that. And I'm not really necessarily... Um, I mean, I wouldn't say that I'm hesitant of getting the root canal necessarily. I mean, well, you know, I don't really want to get any procedures done at the dentist. I had a kind of a bad experience with the anesthesia once, like where the local anesthetic actually, where it was just, I don't know. So I'm, I guess I have a little bit of nerves about, you know, going, but... Um, but, yeah, I mean, I do, I had already determined to pretty much do it. I just wanted to, since it was scheduled tomorrow and you were on tonight, I thought, well, maybe I'll get Susan's opinion. But, yeah, um, how did you find the person you did the most? Did you just, you just called around and kind of asked? Or is yeah. There... Yeah. Okay. I said, is there somebody who specializes in doing root canals in the area? Yeah, that seems pretty wise. Okay. Well, (laughs) good. Well, give us a call back in a little while and let us know what's going on. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much for your advice. (laughs) Okay. Good night. All right. And I remind everyone listening, if you've got a uh, question and would like to speak live with you this evening, please press one so that we can see your hand uh, go up in the queue. And at this time, there are two callers with a question. The next is dialed in from the 347 area code. From the 347, you are live with Susan. Hi, Susan. How are you? Hi. I am enjoying another beautiful day in the Catskills. How about you? Uh, Same. Similar. Um, I'm calling to ask um, about harvesting comfrey. I see a lot of comfrey is being very abundant where I live and um, they're almost budding flowers. And I wonder uh, when's a good time to harvest them because I haven't really harvested any. And I wonder if I should wait until they flower to harvest them or is there like a specific time? One of the things that we, the Comfrey Conference was that people were harvesting comfrey various stages, and it was all very useful. Mm. My preference, being a somewhat lazy herbalist, is to wait until the comfrey is just starting to open its first flowers, 
and to cut the entire flowering stalk down near the ground and to hang each one of those individually, not in bunches, but one mm-hmm. at a time, one comfrey stalk with its leaves and flowers, and to dry that for use in infusion. If I'm going to use comfrey for comfrey ointment or oil, then the leaves at any time or the roots at any time. One of the things that I was most afraid of when I was putting together the comfrey conference was was that everyone was going to talk about making comfort ointment. It would be very boring. Well, I was right. Everybody did talk about making comfort ointment, but it was far from boring. It was fascinating to see all of the different ways that people had of making comfrey ointment. So pretty much whatever you do, it's not going to be a problem. Eagle Song, in her Zoom session, was talking about making hypericum oil with, instead of a lid, a piece of cheesecloth stretched, mm-hmm. rubber-banded over the top of it. And she mentioned at the same time that she's been doing comfrey leaf oil the same way and that it smells good. So that's one tip that we mm-hmm. got from the Hyperion Conference about using your comfrey. Does so that help you? Of, yeah, so instead of closing a lid, you would sort of create some sort of aeration. Well, like, if you're using a canning jar that has a flat and a round, you don't use the flat piece. You use just the round piece, the band, and you put a uh-huh. piece of cheesecloth, you put a piece of cheesecloth over the opening, and then you screw the band on, and that holds the cheesecloth in place. Amazing tips. Thank you so much for that. Yay, Um, the song. She said, listen, those fresh herbs are breathing, and you got to let them breathe. If you put a lid on, they suffocate, and they don't smell good when they suffocate, so let them breathe, and they'll Mm. smell good. Yay, Eagle Mm -hmm. Song. (laughs) Thank you for that. That's amazing. Um, I have another question um, that's related to harvesting herbs. Um, I see a lot of wineberries in the area, and I wonder, um, because, you know, red raspberry leaf tea is like a very nourishing sort of, you know, very useful herb. So I wonder if the uh, wineberry leaves would have similar properties, or uh, is it safe to harvest for tea? The rubus is a genus with a lot of different interesting species. The raspberries and the blackberries are very related. The easiest visual difference is that raspberry leaves are whitish on the undersurface, while blackberry leaves are not. Blackberry Mm -hmm. leaves are pretty much the same color, top and bottom, whereas the raspberry leaves are very different colors. So if the wine berries have that variation, the darker and then the really light bottom, then they Mm -hmm. would be considered a raspberry leaf. 
it's usually raspberries and blackberries have perennial roots and biennial canes. So the perennial root sends up first-year canes. Those canes have leaves, and those are the ones that we harvest for tea. Any that aren't okay. harvested, any that aren't harvested, come the second year into flower and fruit, and then die. So there are always new first-year canes, and if you don't trim them all out from one root system, you will more berries. It's called thinning, right? So you do your plant a service, you get more berries, and you get some tea as well. I find it leaves the easiest plant I've ever dried. What I usually do is cut those first-year canes and throw them into a corner of my drying area. They don't need to be hung up. They don't have any protein in them. They're very astringent. Mm-hmm. And the canes, of course, just naturally kind of make a mound that air gets through. So I just lay down some newspaper and put them in a corner, throw them like that, piled up. And then uh, well, when they're dried, put them heavy gloves and cut them up into small enough pieces for infusion. Okay. So you're saying that wineberries are sort of have similar properties to red raspberry leaves? I was asking you if the wine uh, berry is white on the bottom. Um, I haven't really observed that. White on the bottom, you mean the bottom of the leaf? I mean the bottom of the leaf. Blackberries, which are different from raspberries, but uh-huh. similar. Right. Medicinally, they're different. In their growing habits, they're quite similar. The fruits are have some differences. So blackberries are very astringent, and they're usually not used as tea, except for things like diarrhea or hemorrhaging. We really want a powerful astringent. Raspberry leaves are also astringent, but they're also tonifying and have some mineral content. Blackberry leaves are green both above and below on the leaf. Raspberry leaves are green above, and white are very light green below. All raspberry leaves are raspberry leaves for the purpose of herbal medicine. Whatever kind of raspberry it is, rubus is both blackberries and raspberries. The medicinal raspberry is Rubus ideas, the standard European raspberry, but you do not have to restrict yourself to using only that Rubus. Mm. If, mm-hmm. if what you are calling a wine berry is indeed a raspberry, if the leaf is lighter on the back side, then yes. Yes, it is. I I think so. Yeah, I'm pretty sure um, it wasn't white. It was just like a much lighter shade on the back of it. Much lighter, yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay, and you're saying that I should be harvesting the shoots off the first year? Yes. 
the ones that don't have flowers or fruit. Okay, gotcha. Okay, understood. Thank you very much for that. You're welcome. Yeah, that's all my questions. I really appreciate all your knowledge and teachings, and have a great night. Thank you. You too. Great blessings. Good night. Good night. Mm, How fun. Raspberries growing here, too. That's another fun one to try. All right. And I'll remind everyone listening, if you have a question for Susan this evening, please press 1 so that we can see your hand go up in the queue. But this time, there is one caller that has a raised hand, and they are dialed in from the 352 area code. From the 352, you are live with Susan. Hi, Susan. Hi. Carol from Nashville. Um, I'd like to ask you the difference between English narrow-leaf plantain and plantain major as far as using them interchangeably. There is no difference. European herbalists would tell you that the lance leaf is superior to the broadleaf. I have not found it so. And for much of the time that I've been using plantain, I only had access to the broadleaf. I have, for the past little while, been in an area uh, where there's a lawn where the narrow leaf predominates. And so I've had an opportunity to use it. I would not say that it's better than the broadleaf. I would say that they're plantain leaves and they work just the way plantain works, which is to spread peace. Excellent. That's what I needed to hear. That's what I've read, what I thought. But I still like working with that Majora better. I agree with you. Yeah. Um, that's what I had to ask. Yeah, that's perfect. That's the answer to my question. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome, girl. Green blessings. Good night. <laughs> Green blessings. Good night. All right, and I'm not seeing any hands that have been raised. I'll remind everyone, if you have a question, please press 1 so that we can see your hands in the queue. And um, I don't see email questions that have come in. So, so he, when, I think, when I think about the Hypericum Conference, one of the things that, I, that first comes to mind is the kaleidoscope. Mm-hmm. That was a JC, right? I think it was JC. You know, I. It's yeah. So hard to. I know I there was so much information. Yes, it was JC who made that amazing. She got a, a attachment for her camera, which turns images into a kaleidoscope. And I didn't realize that she was filming that in real time because I said, how did you make it move like that? She said, the wind made it move. So amazing that the wind, that was the last thing I would have guessed. And to hear that and then see that and watch it again, oh, my goodness, magical. Totally, totally beyond magical. Candace and I were talking today about people who learn visually and people who learn verbally, and people who learn or experience somatically, emotionally, and that those of us who do 
learn and experience life that way. Very quickly learn to express everything as a visual or a verbal thing. Mm. Because so many people do that. And so I was thrilled to have not only, you know, the very good visuals and the very good verbals, but things like the kaleidoscope and like Zara's animation and puppetry, mm-hmm. which speaks so, which speaks so directly to that learning without it going through the word center. Mm. What was the highlight for you of the conference? Or two or three? Well, really, the serendipity and the synchronicity, the way that it wove together without it being scripted. We Nobody had watched any of the sessions. I watched Ellen's, and that's it, before, because I helped her record her. But other than that, and everyone chose their own day, but the, it, it's like it was chapters in a book, and it was supposed to have been laid out that way. And, and I just love the, I guess, you know, one of the presenters, um, a couple mentioned it, but one referred to it as the invisible ingredient. And it felt like there were a lot of invisible ingredients to the conference that made any one piece that was on its own um, that much more uh, just rich and deep in my opening my understanding or my curiosity. So... I would say, yeah, that just that whole, the entirety of it, the way it was, it, it came together with itself. So, you know, that's kind of not one thing, but. <laughs> yes, that was Lucretia stirring her melted shea butter and bear fat and hypericum oil together and adding the invisible ingredients. Mm, mm. Just like oh. really, the yeah, that that comes yeah. in, mm. beautiful, lovely, lovely, to be with her and to watch her and doing that. Mm-hmm. I love also that Kathy Cavill, the very first presenter, filmed her presentation sitting by an open fire outside. And invited us to come into the fire circle and to sit with her. And reminded us that Hypericum is a plant of the summer solstice and thus of the fire. Mm. All the way through 10 days, 22 presentations to Francesca de Grandis at her Zoom session, which was the very last session of the Hypericum conference, who said to us, I want you to sing with me. Mm. We're on on Zoom, so we won't really sing together because there's a lag. It will be cacophony. But the goddesses and gods love cacophony, so sing away. And do you remember the exact words of her song? I don't remember the exact words. Um, 
I well, I'm going about... to paraphrase, and if you think I got it all wrong, you say, no, 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 it wasn't anything like that. It was more like this. I think that her song was something like, I am so beautiful and I am so bright that when I show my face, the sun smiles. Mm-hmm. Is that That's close so- enough to what her, what her song was? Yep. Mm-hmm. And we were just singing about being bright and the sun smiling and laughing, and that's how we ended the Hypericum Conference. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah, there was a lot. And watching Barbara with all of her experiments um, and trying so many new things and she, I was inspired the most, I would say, watching her um, just wanted to get out there and do something <laughs> um, new, something new. Um, so that was really inspiring just to see her um, still playing and still doing new things, not just the same stuff that she already knows and has experienced. She's doing that too but um, still so fun and curious. So that was beautiful to see. The fact of the matter is that it really only takes three or four years to create enough medicine for yourself for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And then you have no choice but to play around. Right. Right? You've probably yeah. gotten to that. Probably gotten to that point. I can see you are. Well, you mean hypericum oxymel and oh, what did I rub on myself in the shower the other day? Was that hops and tallow with uh, something else? Such wonderful, wonderful things. I benefit so much from everybody's experiments. Oh, it's so fun! It really is. So yeah. Being inspired like that was a large part of the conference, too. Not just by Barbara, but that was just, that one really touched me. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And there were some really um, interesting graphics that some of the presenters had. I'm thinking especially of um, Kathleen Raven Wildwood's um, decision mandala with nature at the center. Mm. Yes. Mm. And, you know, the ways and the places that she gathers information, that, yes, gather information from science, but also gather information from traditional usage. And experiment on your own. So, you know, and, um, you know, look look at what other people are doing. So not just traditionally, but what they're doing right now. This is certainly one of the things that I'm doing with these single plant conferences. So maybe now is the time to talk about what comes next? The Hypericum Conference is not 100% done. As I said, 
There will be an opportunity now for you to go to the entire conference, right, to have lifetime access to that conference for all 22 presentations, all 20, I think there are 21 Zooms. Gretchen didn't do a Zoom. But all of the shorts, hours and hours and hours of me reading from some really great resources, including the entire book on Hibericum by Andrew Chevalier, Um, all of that. But I need to do the wrap-up, and we need to finish editing those Zoom sessions so that they really work for you. Meanwhile, we can think or dream a little about what comes next. What's the next conference? I think I might have mentioned to you that someone sent me a book on slime. Yes. With a little kind of encouraging note. Okay, I hope you I hope you that you write a book about slime. Of course, I'm more likely at this point to do a conference on slime than I am to write a book. Um, so that's certainly a possibility. However, I do feel somewhat strongly that red clover is getting an unjustified bad rap. Mm. And so I have been thinking kind of all along that the next one should be on red clover. But over the past little while, it has come to me that perhaps I should allow it to be a little more open and that it could be primarily about red clover. But if somebody wanted to do a presentation on an herb that was being slandered, shall we say, that I would be open to that. Like maybe somebody would want to do something about kava root, which some herbal suppliers won't sell. And not to my mind for good reason at all, but for a kind of nonsense reason, which was that the leaf of kava caused liver damage to some people. Well, okay, but so sell me the root. It it wasn't a contamination issue. It was that somebody actually bought the leaf rather than the root and ground it up. Um, So I would be, you know, very open to having, you know, Kava's reputation restored or maybe somebody would want to talk about ephedra. Uh, What other herbs have you heard that are getting an unjustified bad rap? Oh goodness! I mean, I, I really, I mean, I occasionally hear about echinacea and autoimmune conditions don't go well together. I guess that would be the other one that I hear most often. Yeah, that would be that would be the kind of thing, right? That any in that I would think to open it up to anyone who wants to talk about something that they've heard about any particular herb that they could give us some first-hand report on that and or that they would want to 
delve into it and do a presentation on it. That's pretty cool. Yeah, well, that's what I'm thinking right now. So, uh, not absolutely official, but uh, by the time the red clover is starting to bloom, um, I should be able to make it official. I have to, uh, there's a few things, as I said, the Hypericum Conference is not closed, so really we can't go on, but we can nonetheless peer over the edge of what might be coming next. Mm. Nice. Very nice. Do well, we have any questions that have been emailed in? We do not have any um, new email questions. Um, I will remind everyone listening, if you've got a question tonight, please do press 1 and get your hand up in the queue. Um, we don't have any email questions at this time uh, either. Um, I can, I'll, there's something that I have a general question about. I heard it mentioned, and I would love to hear you talk more about it. I did a quick Google search, but can you talk about the limbic system? Like what, what is the limbic system, and how do I nourish that? How do I talk? Yeah, just the limbic system. Well, you Googled it, so what did you find when you Googled it? Um, well, it didn't really make that much sense to me, but let's see. Okay, so it, it seems like almost like a sensory system, like that, like, it was a result of, like, okay, a complex system of nerves and networks in the brain involving several areas near the edge of the cortex concerned with instinct and mood. It controls the basic emotions, fear, pleasure, anger, and drives hunger, sex, dominance, and care of offspring. And I heard it talked about because, I don't know if you've ever heard about this, but it was like, a group of people were singing, practicing for chorus in the 30s in a church. And they got together every week at the same time. And this one week, for some reason, I think there was like nine of them. And they all relate for some reason. And they all survived because the church, there was like a fire that burned down the whole church. And had they been in there singing, they likely would have burned up. And it was just like being postulated that like they were in sync with each other, that their limbic systems, because of all of the singing that they had done together, there was something like, I don't know, I just found that fascinating. So then I just did a quick look up of the limbic system. So I'm curious about that in your, in your view and understanding. Well, it's, often called the primitive system. It is, as you said, survival. And it is what we might call just straight survival. One of the things that we really value and cherish as humans 
is having a little more, doing a little more than just surviving. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that we do a lot to control the limbic system, everything from toilet training to manners. Hmm. One of the best ways to nourish your limbic system is to be with other life forms. Other life forms that aren't toilet trained and that don't have manners. Goats will do, won't they? (laughs) For sure. Oh, for sure. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, I'm always amazed that a goat is able to burp and fart at the same time. Oh, my gosh. I watched one, like, peeing and at the same time, like, munching on, like, the patch in front of her. And it just looked so funny the way she was doing it. It was like both things were equally as important and engaged in, in that moment. That's the lim- that is pure limbic system. Okay. <laughs> right. The limbic system says there is grass. Eat. The limbic system says bladder full void. Mm-hmm. The limbic system is make sure that your heart is beating and you are breathing, that you are eating, that you are, you know, reproducing, that you are getting rid of waste matter. The limbic system is going to keep you embodied. So it's not going to have, you know, the limbic system it, it, it is going to, like, really be sure that you run and that you're afraid if there's something scary or that you stand up and fight and get angry if there's something that you need to get angry at. The, and, again, modern life requires manners. So you nourish the limbic system by giving those parts of you a seat at the table. They don't have to decide on the menu. But you can acknowledge without acting on what the limbic system would like. Mm-hmm. What the limbic system would do. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I and this is actually really like like you were saying, really serendipitous, because our guest tonight is about rewilding. About we could say taking ourselves back to the limbic in mm-hmm. a very shamanic way which allows us to have one foot in each world. Right, the shaman understands the limbic system and understands how it is connected somatically to the physical body. Yeah, okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. And can make changes 
in the physical body by affecting what's happening in the limbic system. But the limbic system does not do words. Uh-huh. It does drums and feathers and sand paintings and smudging and chants and right all that stuff dance yeah okay I love it okay that is so great that you're giving me so much more understanding of that and I yeah I'm fascinated when you dance Right. If you just allow yourself, it's not like, okay, I'm trying to learn the tango. If you're just like moving and dancing, you're activating and nourishing the limbic system. If you're like, especially since Isadora Duncan, right? Right. The limbic system dancer. (laughs) Right. To just give yourself over to how does your body want to move? Yeah. Wow. That is fun and powerful. Like, yeah. Wow. I am just so, oh, I love feeling curious and this whole, just having a name. I mean, I've heard limbic system for a long time, but I've never, I don't know why I never associated it with all of the things that you're talking about. And just to have, I don't know, like a, I don't know, just a, a context or a space that is just robust for inner exploration. It's exciting. (laughs) Well, it's also because I have very specifically and very carefully avoided using any of the words that ordinarily would be associated with the limbic system, such as animalistic, primitive. Mm -hmm. Those words carry a lot of emotional freight. Right. And we do not... We don't, no one benefits from it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Although, you know, wild is so, I mean, when I think about getting wild, I do, I feel animalistic. And I, I'm not afraid to say that. I like feeling animalistic. <laughs> it feels really powerful and I feel really thin. With and you hang out with a lot of animals. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you you don't say that as a prejudicial statement. You say that actually from a place of experience. Right. 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 But unfortunately, when we hear those words, we have often heard them used with a great amount of prejudice. And right. so I think I think we can be more open to those experiences if we give ourselves the benefit of not having those. But let's find out what Chris Franken has to say about this. Is she with us yet? She is. She just hooked in. There we are. Chris Franken is an author, an intuitive, and a way-shower. She holds a bachelor's degree in psychology and sociology. She's a certified Reiki healer, a meditation teacher, and she was a journalist for 16 years. Chris is the 
author of Wild Hearted Purpose. Embrace your unique calling and the unmapped path of authenticity. And she is the author of The Call of Intuition, How to Recognize and Honor Your Intuition, Instinct, and Insight, plus numerous sets of oracle cards, including Soul Purpose, Spirit Animal, and Lightworker. Originally from Toronto, Canada, Chris gratefully calls the rainforest of Byron Bay, Australia, her current home. So let's see, 12, it's what, it's uh, um, morning, early afternoon there for you, Chris? Hi, Susan, it's late morning, it's just about to hit 11 a.m., thank you for that intro, good to connect. (laughs) Thanks so much for being with us tonight. We were just talking about being wild and with the limbic system. I I love how you bring in the animalistic nature and and actually what we've been conditioned to feel about that. We're afraid of the animalistic. So you start talking about like what what it means personally to really be wild or rewild or just, you know, what is it in our nature to be wild? And a lot of people get scared. And and so you start talking about, you know, animalistic things or you start talking about really instinctive ways of being. People are just really disconnected from that. It's it's rude. Yeah. And it is rude in the original meaning of the word rude, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's It's true. It's true, but we're also conditioned to not talk about that either. Right. No. <laughs> so, is it easier to be rude and wild in Byron Bay than it was in Toronto? <laughs> I think that's the best question I've ever had. Um, I, so, I left. Uh, I left Toronto, Canada, when I was uh, two and a half. So I don't remember it really well. I do remember living in Detroit, um, and I lived in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, my parents moved around a lot. I think like, so I lived in Sydney most of my life. And I think the, when you live in a, in a big city, I think, you know, for most people, the conditioning is just really strong. And it's, and because of the many layers of toxicity, whether it's in the air, whether it's in the, in the, in the waves, whether it's in the earth, whether it's in the food, there's just so many layers of toxicity that sometimes it's really, hard to even feel that inner wildness and I know amazing beautiful truthful people who are really wild and who are really connected to the earth and connected to their own integrity and they live in big cities and they thrive that way so I don't want to say you can't be wild in a city of course you can do it your way but I do of course yes as soon as I moved to Byron Bay I started to really expand and really find out who I was and then we moved into a suburb and I still kind of felt a little bit limited. And I kind of like said to my husband one day, hey, hey, let's go live in the, in the forest. It took him a few weeks to, <laughs> to agree, but I was lucky it wasn't a few years. And now we live in the rainforest. And oh, just, it's, it's so wonderful. It's, it's, but I was ready for it. You know, I, I can imagine people living in the wild if you're not ready for it. The wild animals and the, and the very profound connection to the elements and the, the way the land calls you to be 
authentic. It's powerful. It's big work. Tell us more about it. Well, when we when we landed here, I don't think we were particularly naive. We had a lot of friends who lived out in the hinterland around Byron Bay. And uh, I, I don't feel like we came in and, and we got a shock. But what happened was we moved in in January 2022. And there was a lot of rain at the time. We didn't realize that there was a huge flood coming. So end of February, we had been here maybe five weeks. And there was a major flood in the whole area. Um, I mean, Lismore would have made it on the news. There's a big town near Byron Bay that got badly, badly flooded. And so that was a really big initiation for us. And we were really safe and we were in a a really good spot. Um, But still, the shock was incredible. And with that initiation, you know, we felt a really immediate and deep connection to our community, to, to the people who live on the sacred land around here and everyone helping each other out and the lengths that people went to to help each other out was mind blowing. I found myself kind of, I couldn't drive my car cause it was a write off cause it just got full of mold and the mushrooms just took over and I said, okay, you can have my car. And um, so I found myself at home a lot with my kids taking care of them, wanting to be out and about more, but really I needed to stay home. I really, we all pivoted on our purpose in that moment, on that weekend. We really found a deeper sense of ourselves. And I think that's what the wild calls everyone to do. When you live or when you spend a lot of time in the wild. And, you know, I have a, I have a, a pretty nice house and I've got a nice pool. So I'm not going to pretend that I'm living in a, in a shack in the middle of nowhere. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> I have good shelter. But really, you feel you feel the wild, and it starts to get underneath your skin. And I know some people um, can't live with that, and they're really uncomfortable with that. But I'm really grateful that my husband and I were up for the challenge. My kids are awesome, and it's and it's a profoundly uh, revolutionary act, I think, to break free of the conditioning and to say I'm doing this my way, and I'm doing this in a way that makes no sense to me. My mind is not on board. We did not have a meeting with the logical mind and say, hey, what do you think of moving to the wild? We just packed up and went and our hearts are so fully expanded. There's so many challenges, but it's been, it's been awe-inspiring and breathtaking and deeply challenging and I never want to leave. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely and totally agree with you. Yeah. One of the one of the challenges that I set for myself was to build a house for myself. Mm. And I had three rules for the house. And the first was that there were no power tools, there were only hand tools. Wow. And the second one was that there was nothing synthetic, there were only natural materials. And the third one was that there were no men involved. I started digging the foundation on summer solstice and I moved in on winter solstice. Oh, wow. That's so cool. What a cool cycle. How long have you been there? And um, I'm not actually there right now. And there there was the moment when I realized I had putting the floor joists wrong. And I was paralyzed. I'm like, oh, my God, I did it wrong. I did it wrong. And then suddenly I said, just pick up your sledgehammer and knock it all out and do it again. 
Mm. And my life really changed when I did that. Mm. Every single bit of my life really changed when I picked up that sledgehammer and knocked all those floor joists out. When I admitted I had done it wrong and took a sledgehammer to it and redid it. Because there isn't really anything that's hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I also, I also, I have also challenged myself to go solo backpacking in the winter. Yes. Good. Again, because um, I think it's important that we spend time alone in nature if we want to be. Lovers of our wild selves. Mm-hmm. None, of, none of us are in a position to be totally wild. Mm-hmm. But if you even give yourself a couple of days, and after that, you can pretty much, you know, touch it up with a few hours here and there. Um, but you have to, like, really lay down a good foundation of alone in nature where the wild can come to the surface. Mm. Yeah. Tell us more about your book, Wild Hearted Purpose. Well, Wild Hearted Purpose was written in the suburbs, but I feel there was something really calling me through the book that pulled me out into the rainforest. Because I finished the book about two weeks before we moved and then I edited the book here while I was living here in the wild. And so that really added another level to the message. The book was a, the book was a natural extension of the work I do as a sole purpose mentor. And I love talking to people about sole purpose, about life, career, uh, creativity, And I always have. And I've always mentored friends without realizing what I was doing. It's just that I I just see things. I see, I get visions for people and I really can't help but tell them about it. Uh, The the unapologetic psychic, in a way, has (laughs) has never been tamed within me. So then I made that a I guess like a a a side hustle of my profession and I really loved that and the book felt like a natural extension it was like well I'm getting all these themes through my clients and I really want to share that in a way that is really accessible and mother nature came through really gave me the idea one day when I was like you say like alone in nature I just went out and sat on the beach and I had this alone time no phone no nothing I just sat just no nothing else to do. She gave me the idea for the book. And, and I really, when I got home to write the book, I felt like she was going to be, I mean, she collaborates with me in everything that I do, but it was, it was like I was honoring her through the book. And so, so there's a lot of journeys in the book that take the reader into the wild and it may feel real for them. It may feel metaphorical or, subliminal or just really cute and interesting but you know I really wanted people to get the gist of how deeply nature teaches us everything we need to know so when it comes to sole purpose I mean it's not just your career it's your life it's who you live it's who you came here to be not what you came here to do and when you show up 
as love, really that'll take you into the process of rewilding. If you're just being honest with yourself and you're showing up in, in love, I really, that's the crux of the book. And so I really, really wanted to explore that through the eyes of nature and uh, nature's pretty endless with her ideas. So, so I, got, I got to sit with Gaia every day and just say, okay, what's next? What do you want me to say? So, so the book is also uh, created in conjunction with, with the essence of a wildflower from seed to little sprout, you know, the seed in the darkness, the creative idea in the darkness or the, the, the feeling of loss along the path, along purpose, along, the, along your career. And then the seed that sprouts through when you trust and when you tune into your heart the sprout that meets with the sunlight and how it grows and the bud, the precious leaves, the way bud opens into full bloom. And then the beautiful transition of, you know, a flower dying is, is such a terribly beautiful thing. I really, especially a rose, I love watching roses die <laughs> in bunches in my house. <laughs> it's just a wonderfully, I mean, we don't like death. We we say, oh no, those flowers are done. Get get rid of them. Get them in the rubbish bin. And it's no. I want to watch them die. I want to see the petals change colors and fall away. Because in nature, I know that those seeds then get taken by the wind. I'm just watching my garden in the. It's so windy today, and I, and you know the wind is such a powerful force. It takes the seeds. And it spreads them somewhere else. It can spread them for, I mean, it can take things into space. It just takes things on another journey and then the seeds plant plant where they want. And if the conditions are right, if everything is in alignment, another flower will grow. So that, to me, is the process of creativity, of purpose, of life. And it's kind of all the same thing. So to put it down in, in, in a book was really a joy. It felt like a, a deep honor to be so connected to the process of rewilding the process of nature and, and, and sharing that with people. And so I loved, I loved that exploration, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Do you find that people say, well, yeah, I'd really like to do that, but I don't have time? I, I think a lot of the, that's one of them is I don't have time. And so when, when people say I don't have time, I say everyone has time. You just, you just need to tune into what your priority is. And when you start to think of your day in terms of priorities rather than time, then you get, it, it becomes more of a felt sensation. Okay, so what do, I, what do I feel about what I do in my day, in my week, in my career, at, at her, in my house? With my, with my friends and my community, what am I feeling? What am I doing that's not feeling in alignment? It's not what I don't have time for because we all have time. It's just you create space for what your heart desires. And, and it, can, it, it can be a process of, okay, I'm in a job, a full-time job that I don't like, but it's paying the bills. This is the common story I get a lot. And, and I really want to transition over here to a life um, full of just, incredible things that I really love that I really want to do so where is the bridge like I can't how do I make that leap and I'm like there is no leap there is no leap and and the net will catch you there's no such thing you take a step you just take one step and if you can take one step every day then can you imagine where you're going to be in a year's time it's not about quitting your job and leaving your house and moving into the wild and doing it all in a weekend that's not even possible there's steps that we take 
So that's what I say to people who don't feel like they have time. And the other thing is what we touched on earlier, and that is people feel really deeply afraid, whether they are conscious of it or not. They're afraid of their own inner wilderness because perhaps they never had anyone, you know, like, it just, I'm so, I love stories of people who just had that one wild witchy auntie that kind of kept alive the, the wilderness of their soul or that, or that, you know, came out into the country and they'd spend time with horses and they remembered, they remembered as a kid, as a teen, you know, that one person in a life, a parent or a sibling or a teacher or but when you're cut off completely from that and you learn to deny it because then you are, you know, given some kind of approval, whether that's obvious or uh, subliminal, then you get disconnected from it. And because you're taught that it's too much, then you think it's too much. But really, when you get into it, it's not. It it's makes not... you too much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I love... I, I love that that nature is wild and and there, and there are reasons to be scared. There are reasons to be fearful. You know, I wouldn't go down into the forest where I live on the acreage here and just put up a flimsy tent and just, you know, there are sacred beings here. There are indigenous spirits here. There are wild dogs. There are foxes. There are goannas. Oh man, I'm not, I'm not about to do that. So there, there are, there's, I suppose, like an instinctual, healthy protectiveness within me that says, okay, so there's things we're going to do in the wild that feel good, and then there's things we're not going to do in the wild, even though, you know, that could be a cool initiation. It's a story to tell the kids one day, but, you know, you do, you do, you do need to play it safe a little bit. And it's the same when you go uh, wild, I guess, on the inside. That whole process, you have to be mindful of, of what feels safe and what doesn't feel safe and why it doesn't feel safe. And if you can be curious about that, I think you'll undo the layers that you, that you need to in, in time. Yeah. Mm, mm. Step by step. You yeah. don't have to chuck it all over. I was, um, hiking in New Zealand on the South Island and we were actually coming back. We had been out hiking for four or five days and um, as we were coming out we met a man hiking in and he was whistling and he had this big grin on his face and he stopped us and he said just want you to know, divorce the wife, quit my job I'm free and off he goes, hiking, whistling (laughs) back to our car our car wouldn't start the battery had discharged and there was another car there in the parking lot we knew it was his car and we knew that he would be absolutely fine with us figuring out how to start his car and charging our battery which we actually couldn't do we actually had to take his car to town but we knew he was okay with it because he had thrown over everything he was a wild man and so long as we were respectful we weren't even sure if he was ever coming back for that car you know Oh, that's brilliant. Oh, He was certainly there to save us, and we were very thankful for him. (laughs) Oh, how wonderful. Right, on his way out, that's it. Goodbye, cruel world. Here I am, (laughs) hiking into the... (laughs) 
New Zealand Alps. Um, oh. uh, as opposed to the a, a woman who uh, got in touch with me, she said, I had written and said I was going to come and visit you, and I was getting ready to come and visit you by going to a local park, and I got so into getting wild at the local park that I took off my, all my clothes, and then I got arrested, and so that's why I didn't come and visit you. <laughs> it is true that as you feel more wild, you will feel more constrained by your clothes, and you will like to have them off, but you must keep one foot in the real world, gang. <laughs> Oh, wow. Oh, I really hope I get a message from one of my friends like that one day. I mean, that's when you know you've made it into the world. Right. It is true. You've you got to keep one. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we go we go skinny dipping at the beaches around here, but we don't do it on the busy beaches that are being patrolled. We do it safely in, you know, on a, on a safe day when there's not too much surf and there's no one to report us. And I mean, it right. seems so silly that you can't just have a quick skinny dip these days, but, you know, that's right, fine. It does. It seems very, very silly, right? But but nonetheless, that is the rule, and you do have to follow it. <laughs> Otherwise, you're going to find yourself in a situation that you really don't want to be in. <laughs> <sighs> One of the... Uh, that the guests here decided that she was going to go skinny dipping in the public part of the river. And the man who lived in the house there called the cops on her, and when the cops came to tell her she had to put on clothes, she kicked the cop. So I got a call from the police station asked me to come and get her. She kicked the cop? Oh, you've got some good friends. Well, you see, she was a student. And she, you see, when people first meet their limbic system. <laughs> yes. They they get a little mm, carried away, shall we say. <laughs> oh. And I completely understood, you know. And she was not doing anything wrong. Yes. <laughs> and she was in the water. There was nothing wrong in her mind about what she was doing. And here's this big dressed man telling her that he was going to arrest her and take the town. I would have kicked too. I mean, I wouldn't have because I would not have been in my limbic system, but I com- could completely understand and support <laughs> her need to lash out. Right? See, the limbic system is like that. It doesn't say, this is a cop, you should kick it. The limbic system says, big man, kick it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and sometimes when the pendulum is is swinging like really far one way, and then it just starts swinging wild in the other way, you do get carried away, and you just—I mean, so tempting that full expression, that that empowered feeling, and you know, slowly you kind of come back to the middle. I I, I like to talk of the middle road, the middle path of. You know, not not trying to buy into one side or the other, but living my truth. But we we get caught up in in one way or the other, and I I just have this image of your friend by the river. That's great. The river that I swim in, we have a little creek on our property that I get to dip in naked. That's fine. And then there's a there's a big river I like to dip in as well. But that's right next to a road, so I usually put my swimmers on for that one. But not yes, at the this, beach. This one's right next to a road. It's by a bridge where cars go over the bridge. So oh. it's really <laughs> visible. It's not like she was being discreet. Hello. Right? No. No. <laughs> no. Oh, that's so Little funny. discretion I want is always a good idea. 
Yeah. I, anyway. So I like to, to tell people that a good way to um, nourish their their wild is to eat wild things. Mm. Do you eat wild things? Yeah, we do. So we have a beautiful vegetable garden. We have fruit trees. We're growing our own uh, mushrooms. We've just started a, a mushroom farm out the back of our house. We are... Uh, we we're growing we're growing a food forest. We, we were so blessed when we moved in at the number of fruit trees and beautiful banana trees. And then my husband went off and did an agroecology course, so he's right into getting yes. a food forest. Yeah, food forest something which is which is really which is really great. Our reliance on on meat isn't isn't as much as it used to be, but um, our kids our kids love it and thrive with it. But my husband and I are. Um, here and there with it we have chickens that lay eggs and so we eat the chickens eggs and we've got our own bees and so that's that they provide our honey and that's just happened you know bit by bit in the last almost year and a half and there is a real sense I mean there's nothing like it there's nothing there's nothing like coming into the house with a basket of vegetables and eggs and herbs and saying okay I'm this is wow so the vibration of that kind of food when you're not spraying it and you are, you're the one that planted it or your friends, we have friends that live on our property with us. They planted it. We all looked after it. We watered it on the, on the dry days and we made sure it didn't, all seedlings didn't get flooded like yesterday on the big heavy rain days. And so the, the, the vibration that comes with that when you're holding that basket, when you're blessing the food, when you're cooking, when you're eating, there's nothing to describe that. There's nothing like that. You can't, you can't get that vibration from anything else. And it does change you. It just, it changes your vibration. And what that does for me is it's this really big unfolding. And it, and it kind of comes back to what you were saying about the foundations of the house that you had to just start again, because what nature does when you're living in nature or when you visit nature often and then top up, as you say, so perfectly, when you really connect with her and you start to eat your own food, you start to eat, food from the markets, you start to be really conscious of the food that you're eating and the vibration that emanates from it, that emanates then through you, is that there's this, there's this incredible ripple effect of integrity that runs through your life. And you can't build a house on foundations when you know the foundations aren't right. You can't actually do anything in your life that is out of integrity with her, with love, with the earth, with your heart. It's all the same thing. When you feel, when you know something is wrong, you've got to fix it. It doesn't matter what it is. You've got to go back and you've got to start again. And, and that's the level of integrity that we get called to when we eat from her and when we lay belly to belly with her, when we run naked through her waters, when we bang our drum in her winds. And so that's something that I'm really, really intrigued by lately is this whole idea of integrity and honesty and responsibility. Uh. Thank you. That is so important. Mm. So absolutely vital. Mm. For dinner last night, I had nettle soup mm. and cheese toast. And the cheese was made from the goat's milk that I produce here. And it was sprouted wheat bread with sourdough starter that I had made the day before. Mm. Wow. And we, we, we sat there and we looked at this simple meal, yeah. and there were some lacto fermented things on the table for a little color. 
you know, and we just cried because it's just so beautiful to be able to nourish yourself so simply and so well. Yeah. Yeah, that is just perfect. At one point, my daughter said to me, oh, you know, it'd be so much easier to classes if you didn't feed them. And I said, oh, no, that's the most important thing I do is feed them. Mm. The most important thing is that they eat some wild food, mm-hmm. that they are here and that they reach out and pick something and put it in their mouth and they they are made whole by it. I don't know how else to say it. I know it sounds so corny, but it's, you know, it's like some, somehow when they do that, they, they suddenly get it that the earth really is going to provide for them. Mm. Mm. And that's what I hear you experiencing too. Wow. Wow. She's so generous. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the more you find out about the way the bees work and the way the bees read your energy and provide you, specifically you, the family in the house next to the beehive. You human beings who come over to visit us and say hi. You human beings who plant flowers that are just for us. We're going we're gonna to read your energy and we're going to actually make this honey. This, is, this actually makes me want to cry right now. We're going to make this honey to give you nutritionally, energetically, what you need. Like what? I didn't know that they did that. Wow. And then, so what are those? What are those crazy little hens doing in their little hen house when I come down and sing mm-hmm. for them at night to tuck them in on their little sticks? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then what are they? What's going on? What's going down with that egg? The egg is possibly one of the greatest miracles in nature. I mean, how was that thing ever made inside of there? But anyway, <laughs> it's, it's miracle. If you pause long enough in nature to consider it, it's miracle after miracle after miracle. I call it the gifts of the animals because I am gifted by them. Yeah. And, you know, in return for those gifts, I take care of them so that their lives are a little easier, so that they have the extra doodah to get it, to share with me. It seems <laughs> to work out pretty well for us all. <laughs> I mean, I, they get water in a bucket, I get, you know, eggs or milk or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll think that we were laughing about the goats who will bypass the pond and go straight to the muddy puddle and drink water that is so muddy that they that they then have to go to the pond and drink just to get the mud off their faces. <laughs> but they're, you know, they're just, they so crave the minerals that they yeah. want the muddy water. They know. Mm. Oh, my goodness. I am so enjoying talking to you. Please tell people how they can get in touch with you. Well, thank you so much, Susan. I have had the best 30 minutes. I don't, I don't want this to stop. No, <laughs> my <website>, me either. <laughs> <laughs> my website is chrisfranken.com. That's K-R-I-S-F-R-A-N.com. And you'll find me on Instagram by that name. You find me on Pinterest. You can sign up to my newsletter. You can buy my books. They're available all over US, Canada, Australia, around the world now, which is so great. 
um, you can connect with me and we can do a sole purpose, wild-hearted mentoring session if you like. But it's all there on the website. All right. And what do you want to leave in the hearts and the minds of everyone who's listened to you tonight? Mm. I'd like to say, you know, the idea of us rewilding is not becoming wild. It's remembering that wild spark that is always within us because it is us. So really the process of rewilding is, is letting go of everything that isn't us. And that's, that feels a lot safer to a lot of people than, you know, hiking the Alps for three months. So I'd like to leave that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Chris. I believe that we are reweaving the healing cloak of the ancients. And you are laying down some warp threads, some of the very important threads on which the whole weaving depends as you remind us, um, as uh, Joanna Macy says, um, you know, every single cell in your body is made from the earth and the earth is five billion years old. It's time to act your page. Perfect. Brilliant. Sarah Ellen, thank you so much for helping me in so many ways to restore herbal medicine to its rightful place as people's medicine. Good night, everybody, and green blessings. <laughs>